Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Rick Harp, host of Media Indigena, joining me again from Winnipeg. Hi, Rick. Hi. Rick, we are going to talk today about the blockade crackdown. It's not just the protesters who are getting roughed up and thrown in jail. It's reporters, too. And we're going to talk about the tech mine pullout. Oh, no, the largest tar pit project ever planned is now dead. Who is to blame? The answer will shock you. Good to have you back. Good to be back. This episode is brought to everybody by Heather Keim, Ryan Felton, Adrian Diaz, Don Anderson, Rebecca Sheffield, Brian Lamb, Sam Gregory, and Michael Menzel. My name is Michael Menzel. I'm a retail manager from North Battleford, Saskatchewan, and I support Canada Land because it's the only comprehensive media criticism program in Canada, and the investigative journalism happening on shows like Commons, Thunder Bay, and Cool Mules, you just won't find that anywhere else. Okay, Rick, last week, uh, the title for our Shortcuts episode was Wet'suwet'en Coverage is Still Pretty Bad. I don't know if we should just use that as the rolling title of this show every week or or maybe um, <laughs> update it to uh, Wet'suwet'en coverage is now inexcusably shitty. Uh, I, where do we begin talking about this last week in pipeline protest coverage? Where would you begin? Oh, well, I think where I might begin is just, um, and I know this is kind of like media criticism 101, but just the durability of a frame once it's in place 
contradictory facts uh, seem to not really matter. For example, um, this idea that Canada's in economic chaos, that, that, that the, the, the economy is collapsing, it's in, it's in critical shape because of these blockades. And notwithstanding the fact that there was a pretty decent article, I thought, from the CBC talking about how CN and CP and the federal government kind of negotiated this diversion plan to because they knew uh, something like this might happen and they responded accordingly. They didn't volunteer the details. And, you know, it's not unlike, for example, the RCMP, when there's a road blockade, they basically divert traffic, they detour it around it. And much the same thing was undertaken here. But uh, the impression was allowed to sort of linger in the air that we're going to have empty store shelves. We're going to people are going to freeze to death in their homes and whatnot. And once that frames in place, frankly, it, again, it's hard to dislodge it. And, and, and despite uh, the irony of there being, uh, I feel, an unprecedented abundance of information sources, doesn't seem to matter. Once somebody gets out of that gate first with an impression, you know, an allegation, everyone else is playing catch up, including the facts. <laughs> Uh, you know what? That's a great place to start because I will confess, I, I got this email from a listener saying, hey, I, I, you know, the media has given me the idea that there's like a complete rail paralysis, like the blockade is to shut down rail traffic throughout Canada entirely. And I don't think that's true. And I tweeted that out. I said, hey, is there really a rail stoppage, like a complete rail shutdown in, in Canada? And people were tweeting me like, no, not where I live. And people just started sharing photos of freight trains just running overdrive because, of course, now that they've diverted traffic from the routes that were blocked, there's tons of traffic on these other routes. And Rick, I got to tell you, I got mocked pretty you know, roundly from journalists saying, Jesse, nobody was reporting that there was a complete Canada-wide <laughs> rail blockage. And James McLeod from Post Media is like, oh, Jesse Brown is now a trains truther. And uh, another Post Media reporter, Tyler Dawson, said, I don't know that there's anyone who has said there's a countrywide shutdown. And I was feeling pretty foolish. And then I read Forbes magazine uh, reporting complete rail paralysis throughout Canada. The Globe and Mail on Wednesday reporting Mohawk protesters ground the country's rail traffic to a stop. Yeah. So I do not think that I'm the only one who accepted that frame. That you're, I think that when people read blockade, 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 and then you read more media coverage about how it's only a matter of days before uh, we can't even get the necessary chemicals to get like drinking water to work in Canada, um, which is hilarious for other reasons, you know. But, but I think that there was the media spread an idea that hey, maybe you know maybe there's sympathy out there for Indigenous protesters up to a point, but they are about to stop the entire economy because they have completely shut down rail traffic. And that simply was never true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's this kind of cartoonishly fake outrage that, that continues to you know work in binaries. On the one hand, we have innocent Canadians. On the other, villainous uh, radicals. On the other, blocking every single track that ever existed in Canada. And, and you know, once in a while, there's sort of a cover by sticking in a line or two well below, you know, uh, the, ma- the main lead paragraphs as kind of a sort of a, an ass covering move by, by journalists. But again, uh, I think the problem is once you go down the path of villainy, that is to say, that is how you construct your story uh, metaphorically in terms of its frames. Uh, it's almost like there's no there's no turning back on that. 
Now, again, we can get into an endless debate about, well, is, is this what the, uh, the, 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 the audiences have been trained to expect? Uh, can we entirely fault media that's utterly uh, bound up and trying to attract and truck in attention? I don't know. We're not going to resolve that today, but I, I it's think chicken that, and egg um, stuff, I guess, you know, and, 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 the, and the people who make the media are also consumers of media who have those, you know, tropes within their heads. Some, some of it is unintentional, but it gets into the coverage, you know, like, like there's been this whole focus on like, you know, who are these hereditary chiefs really? And, are, you know, are, like a, any dissenting voice gets like their own profile and the Globe and Mail. They, they did two profiles of Wet'suwet'en, you know, various chiefs and, and, and members of the community who are not like the top hereditary chiefs who actually support the project. And they profiled uh, Gary Naziel, who is a Laxilu wing chief, uh, about how he is. He's actually really for this project. And they do not mention that he is currently subcontracted by CGL and has worked for them. for He's employed by the pipeline. No conflict of interest there, eh? <laughs> It's hard not to ascribe attention, intentionality. Like there, it, it seems like the media is trying to sow divisions and delegitimize. Like it's just a handful. It's just these five chiefs who are making all this trouble. Should they really be allowed to hold the whole country hostage? So you know, like that's part of the frame as well. Yeah, yeah. Another another sort of frame of reference is just Canada continues to be divided today. I, I hear that in the intro of various uh, various news outlets and. Again, it, it just seems to be like crack to media. If you can find any way to frame something as as divisive and as uh, you know tearing the country apart, I mean, we used to have the the two solitudes, and frankly, to me, it, maybe that is apt, but it's not apt in the way that that they think. It occurred to me that there are two solitudes, but they're the kind that that I would define as upstream and downstream. And th those who are downstream of all the pollution and all the uh, uh, effects of climate change, those are mostly indigenous people who've been sort of relegated to sacrifice zones for Canada's prosperity. And then you have upstream, which, you know, at the immediate upstream, I mean, those who, who, who immediately profit from, uh, from resource extraction through jobs, and then you go further up upstream, you have the corporations who who are raking in billions of dollars of profit. But that's not, of course, what we mean by divided. In the media, it's usually hardworking Canadians and then these radicals uh, on the on the rails. That's, that's fantastic. Let's talk about that because that's another thing that I think uh, the media has played actually a divisive and misinforming role in that, you know, you get like, I think maybe one, maybe there were two instances of yahoos in pickup trucks going and disassembling the blockades. Right. It was they heaped coverage on these guys who were confronting the protesters. And, you know, I, for all this fear of these uh, angry indigenous protesters, these are remarkably peaceful protests. I don't think that any of these things have have, uh, have devolved into fisticuffs. But uh, so these guys show up and they take down the blockades. It gets covered. Uh, and then Peter McKay comes in and says, good on you. Yeah. You know, that, this is fantastic. And then, you know, he walks that back and then that gets covered. And then the rebel comes in and says, these Canadian patriots are doing what Trudeau's, you know, wussy cops are not allowed to do. If any of them get arrested by the uh, Trudeau uh, state, we will cover their legal fees, right? So what you get out of that is you create a, a, the, an idea, which I do not think is actually accurate, that basically we're heading towards blood on the tracks. 
that this situation, you know, Trudeau has taken a position of like patience, reconciliation, but, uh, you know, that's just a vacuum of leadership. And into that vacuum, we're going to have anarchy pretty soon. And I think that is what sets the stage for what happens next. I mean, the media has fed into this idea that there's like going to be a race war on the train tracks. And, uh, you know, when you're trying to explain Trudeau's complete about face, whereas just, you know, weeks ago he was saying, we're going to have negotiations, we're going to talk, this is a time for patience. And now he said, well, I've got no more patience. The other side isn't even showing up to the negotiating table. It's time to start, like, you've got till midnight. And then, it's, you know, the, the, and then we're going to start cracking heads is the implied threat. So where did that come from? I think that comes from uh, a growing public sense that we can't stand for this. The economy is about to be paralyzed if it's not paralyzed all, already. And we're heading towards, uh, you know, uh, absolute violence because we have no leadership. And then he feels like he has to do something about this. So the media, I think, has played a very real role in shaping the outcomes here. And, like, it's just filled with holes in the coverage, vacuums of information and misrepresentation. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't agree more. I will go on, Rick. <laughs> I'm worked up because when I look at this in its totality, I feel like this is a media failure in a really consequential way. It's getting me angry. But I just want to like, let me kind of step back from my, my, my rage and just look at this as a curious newsreader. Yeah. Because when Trudeau says that there's this negotiation, like the other side's not, not showing up to the table, I just want to get like a narrative straight, you know, because that's not what I thought was happening. What I thought was happening was that uh, the hereditary chiefs of Wet'suwet'en were saying, we want the RCMP out of uh, Wet'suwet'en territory. And that starts with getting them immediately away from these raids on the camps at Unistoten, but we don't want them patrolling either. And the government says, or the, the actions of the RCMP are that they, they withdraw from the camps, but they do not withdraw from Wet'suwet'en territory. They, they continue to patrol. They don't meet the demands. And therefore, mm. the blockades don't come down. Yeah. Right? So who walked away from that negotiation? Like, it, it would seem to me that it's the government that for some reason was unable to fully withdraw, whether uh, there's a conversation about whether the PMO can call the RCMP off if they wanted to, but whatever. Obviously, that is what's being negotiated. And RCMP are not willing to fully withdraw. And then Trudeau claims that the other side is the unreasonable one, that, that there's no one there to talk to. Now, what I'm lacking in the coverage is I am not aware that the prime minister has explained why the RCMP must continue to patrol and why that's not negotiable. And I am not aware of a reporter asking him. Right. I just don't see in the reporting that there's a record of their position. So before we even get to, oh, is the media sympathetic? Are they critical? I don't know that they even have created a public record of the rationale because nobody's mm -hmm. asked. Yeah, well, I mean, just like the, the, the claims, the allegations that uh, Canada's economy has been crippled by these blockades, there seems to be a lack of curiosity and, and scrutiny to these claims. And so it is with, with the federal government's supposed efforts to negotiate. And in some ways, I just sort of feel like there was either an unstated or a specifically calculated move to kind of, well, let's just wait a certain amount of time that it makes it look like we've invested some effort and some goodwill. And after such time, we can say, well, we tried our best, but we've got these intransigent folks. Uh, we have no choice. Our hands are tied. And something else I want to talk about in terms of the media role, I, I thought uh, Kenneth Jackson from APTN News 
where I, I continue to be employed. So I, I guess I'm a booster of our own <laughs> reportage. But in any case, there was a story he did on the 19th called How CN Rail Got Its Injunction Against Tyendinaga Mohawks. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's worth reading. But basically, it, it seems that CN Rail and, and the, the presiding judge based all their evidence on media reportage. Uh-huh. And none of which seemed to show anybody on the tracks. Now, I know, of course, some people are going to say, well, that's a distinction without a difference. They were immediately adjacent to the tracks. But in any case, it's quite something that, you know, what's being relied upon as evidence is strictly media. And of course, to the extent that, that the media has not done a fulsome job, as we've been discussing, that has repercussions, obviously, in, in the legal context. Yeah, it's a whole other layer to it. If the best account you have is the media account, and the media, in many cases, isn't even there. You know, last week we told you about um, the RCMP detaining reporters in Wet'suwet'en who were who were trying to uh, document the raids. Where you know, like they didn't arrest them; they just like kind of put them in. The, they told them they couldn't be there. There was a media exclusion zone. They put them in the car and just dropped them off in a parking lot. I think they later apologized. You know, they, they, they said that some officers were overstepping. There was confusion. This week, I can tell you that Melissa Cox, a documentary filmmaker who was covering the arrest of a chief in Gitsan territory, which is not far from Wet'suwet'en, yeah. she was not just detained, but arrested and kind of violently roughed up, as the account goes, uh, by the RCMP. They threw her camera to the ground. They apparently were messing with the camera. I don't know if they were deleting the footage or what. They locked her up for hours. So there was an arrest made. There was a detention. They released her. They haven't charged her. This is shameful shit. Like, what's happening with the press? Like, we we can't see what's going on because media are being kept at bay. And the only media who are trying to get very close to the action are, it seems, the independent media. The big legacy brands, either they are unable to invest to have people, like, basically camp out with protesters for, like, a month which is how some of these people in Wet'suwet'en got, got access. And then here in, in you know, uh the OPP kept media in this, like, exclusion zone, like, very far from the action when it finally came time to uh, make arrests uh, after the protesters did not observe the midnight deadline earlier this week. So how did we get this footage of, like, five or six, like, heavily armed officers descending on, on a couple of protesters and, and when, when, when force is used, we got really, really gripping and disturbing footage of how much force was used. We didn't get it from all the reporters who observed that line. We got it from something I, I actually was unaware of, Real People's Media. That was the website that posted this video. And who are Real People's Media? Well, the Globe and Mail finally, uh, you know, gives some uh, attention towards uh, uh, independent indigenous media in this really derisive profile of Real People's Media, which is basically casting aspersions on them because they are uh, protesters and covering the protest, which is, you know, there's tension there and conflict there that I would be quick to point out as a media critic myself. Mm -hmm. But I think that the article really was uh, delegitimizing this outfit without a couple of important things being mentioned. One is that every advocacy group in existence has their own kind of communications wing where they try to document what's going on and tell the story from their point of view. There's no real unique aspect uh, here. But also the irony of this and the fact of it is is that in Canada right now, if you want to document and do journalism and report on the conflict between police and protesters you have to be a protester because reporters aren't allowed to be close enough to see that stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this the same t- 
type of folks who were complaining about being uh, journalists not having access to the uh, BC legislature in Victoria, I mean, I, where's their umbrage with regard to the RCMP keeping uh, media away? And if, if the media want to dump on real people's media for, for the reasons you laid out, well, then go then then go into the cover the fray yourself. I, I, why did they? I don't know. I, I wasn't there. I don't know what the mood was like. I, uh, but why did none of the, as you call them, legacy media decide to push it? Yeah, there's sort of uh, crimes of omission and, and negligence and laziness. There's there sort of uh, bad media that can happen because you don't have the resources. And then there's there's the cumulative effect of that, which without anyone seeking to do damage can really be consequential. And I think that that played a big role in, in creating this frame, as you put it, which which led to a decision from the top to crack down, which is now having reverberations, you know, and, and all of the, the it's not going to work. We're, we're already seeing how many more protests and, and blockades that's that's inspiring. But I don't let them off the hook entirely. We'll, we'll continue to name names because some of this coverage that we're seeing, it feels intentional. It's not simply people with, with sort of unchecked bias or just dealing with a lack of resources. When you elevate some voices, you try to create division and dissent within communities. When you try to delegitimize, I, I, I hate to even say his name, but the National Post is still publishing Jonathan Kay. And Jonathan Kay has this trope where he's like continuing to uh, refer to the hereditary chiefs as hereditary dudes or these hereditary guys. And he's sort of openly mocking and dismissing, like, what kind of, like, you know, the implication is, like, it's not even implied. Like, like he, he I, I've seen him just say this outright. Like, what kind of a backward system do you get power based on who your dad was? John Kay fucking wrote Justin Trudeau's memoir. He ghost wrote <laughs> that. You don't get to shit on hereditary political leadership in Trudeau's Canada, you don't get to. I, like, I, 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 I don't excuse it. Well, huh. does Jonathan Kay's career go anywhere without Barbara Kay? I mean, it's it's an honest question. I'm not trying to be <laughs> a dick here, but if we want to talk about hereditary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> here we are again. Yeah, uh, casting aspersions on on hereditary uh, connections. Anyway, yeah, I'm just put. For, I'm honestly just putting it out there. It's just baffling. I mean, come on. If there's no Pierre Trudeau, I think there's a there's a decent argument to be had that there's no Justin Trudeau. If we don't have uh, Rob Ford, we don't have Doug Ford. You guys just did a series on, on dynasties, right? I mean, on how family privilege is passed on or passed laterally. It, it's it, it, it's again, this is the kind of larger contextual thinking that just seems to evacuate from reporters brains when they want to just, you know, go with the immediate heat of the situation. And I just think this lust for heat is, I don't know, again, this is this is at the this is the, the, the core contradiction of media, I suppose, they're there to inform, but they're also there to inflame. And I don't know how you resolve that that contradiction. It's about as hard as resolving the contradiction between climate justice and uh, economic development, which I'm sure we'll get into soon. Okay, Rick, on Duly Noted, we try to shed a little bit more light on things that need a little bit more light that uh, maybe would otherwise go overlooked or just things that we like and want more people to know about. What do you have for us this week? Well, uh, I have quite a remarkable statement by uh, a longtime CBC columnist, and I'm talking about Jesse Wente, 
who has appeared for a couple decades on Metro Morning, the flagship morning program of CBC Toronto. Mm -hmm. And in just a a blistering, righteous (laughs) column, basically he declares reconciliation is dead and it was never really alive. If you haven't heard it, you can can easily access it on the CBC website. Uh, He also talks about how uh, quote, Canada. Canada is a state built on the removal of Indigenous peoples to make way for resource extraction companies. That's very literally the reason this country exists. <laughs> Canada is a state built on removal of Indigenous peoples. That's quite the comment on the state broadcaster. <laughs> Rick, I heard Jesse Wente delivering that column, and like my house, just everybody stopped what they were doing. It's just there are moments in radio where just something has just immediacy and urgency and the ring of truth. Like he's saying things that are uh, politically radical, considered so, and yet like if you actually take that apart each, well, that's actually just historically true. <laughs> like that's, you know, we're, we're sort of here to, you know, help. British Empire make hats before anything else. There was just the emotion in his voice, but the, the 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 power of what he was saying, and the fact that he was saying it on the CBC was remarkable. Yeah, yeah, and the fact that he's doing it in his position in a major Canadian market, very close to the populations that are affected by these blockades. I mean, I think he's probably the only Indigenous person at the CBC who could do that. Now, he's not a an employee of the CBC, so it's important to make that distinction. Nonetheless, I I don't know of any other Indigenous person who's regularly uh, appears on the airwaves of CBC could, could do that. I'm tempted to say, get away with that. I used to work with the CBC, and there's hell no would I ever even think of of going there. Absolutely not. No no other voice. Nobody from CBC Indigenous, nobody could say that and keep their job. I mean, that was Jesse Wente, I think, exerting the moral, the moral authority that he earned. Exactly. Exactly. Duly noted it's supposed to be a short segment, but I have to ask you, do you agree with him? The the, the last time we we uh, had a headline that, that had something to do suggesting that reconciliation is compromised or dead, uh, I heard pushback from Indigenous voices say, who are deeply invested in this concept of reconciliation. I'm just wondering what, 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 what your take on that was, if that's possible to synopsize. Uh, well, you know, reconciliation is slippery. It, it's one of these terms that, that uh, you know, can do a lot of work. Uh, <laughs> uh, often it's used as cover to, to make it appear as if something's actually being done. To me, re- reconciliation is about reparation, it's about restoration. It's about identifying that which was taken away, whether it's land or language. I mean, these are things that can be restored, right? Uh, you can never restore the broken relationship between a parent whose children were seized at, at age five and taken into residential school. But um, that's how I define it, and, and, and that's uh, drawing on, on, on the wisdom of Tanya Tagak. So that which was taken away, it, you know, the problem creates the parameters of the solution. And I don't see anything even close to that. So, I, you know, reconciliation is dead. Uh, like like Jesse, uh, I agree. It, it was never really alive. Duly noted. To wit, I have a duly noted to share, which is All right. a cartoon that... Uh, Ryan McMahon brought to my attention that was published in the midst of all of this in the Calgary Herald. Maybe it was at least within uh, 
maybe a few days before Jesse Wente shocked us by saying such things on the CBC. And you say, wow, if you can say things like that on the CBC, maybe there is a hope for the media in Canada. And then the same the same week, um, a syndicated cartoon ran in the Calgary Herald. Uh, you know, this wasn't anything that anyone at Post Media wrote or drew. They, they Who even knows in this day and age if they even have a human to look at their funny pages to make sure that something like this doesn't get published. But published it was. And the cartoon is a syndicated comic I, I was previously unaware of called Close to Home. And there's a very shitty drawing of uh, the Lone Ranger and Tonto at a bar. And Tonto is just drawn in, in this, like, bug-eyed, red-skinned, just absolute racist propaganda caricature. And he's drunk, slumped over at the bar with his ear on the wooden bar as if it was a railway track. And he's saying, Kimosabi, Tonto here, last call coming, maybe eight or ten minutes away. So that's uh, that's the funny pages during Reconciliation in Canada. Post Media apologized. They canceled the comic strip. They were quick to point out this is a syndicated comic strip. And I'm sure that, that, that you know, Post Media employees, there's a lot of reporters I respect there who, like, you know, it, it bothers them, the association of Post Media with racism. It bothers them that they have to go to dinner parties or meet friends and answer for the things that Post Media has published when they're just trying to do their jobs. And they're quick to let me know, like, do you think that that's what we do is sit around twirling our mustaches and planning the next racist cartoon? <laughs> um, and I feel for them. I feel for them as, as journalists who are, still have jobs and want to keep them. But, like, you can't step in dog shit 10 steps in a row and keep calling it an accident. Because right. I remember the anti-immigrant column that they had to apologize for out in Vancouver. And I remember Sue Ann Levy's uh, column about goat slaughtering. Like it, it, it goes on. I remember the anti-Semitic cartoons that they recently, like it, there's just, it doesn't happen to other people again and again and again. And so, or, you know, maybe it does, but it happens to post media more than anyone else. And I will, I will note it every time. Yeah, I think it's um, it's proof that the National Post doesn't read their comic section either. <laughs> and uh, so, but be that as it may, you know, the, the question of the relevance of comic strips in, in newspapers, yeah, it's at the same time, you it's in your paper, so, so you better damn well own it. It's, it's timing is, is both unfortunate, but also telling, I think, in a lot of ways too. Duly noted, sir. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Okay, Rick, so um, this is bad news for the Alberta economy. This was a shocker to a lot of people that uh, the biggest oil sands project ever planned, a project that uh, was on track to you know create thousands of jobs, that had uh, sign-ons from um, indigenous leadership, uh, the, the tech mine, tech pulled out. And instantly, it was a blame game as to why this happened. And I'm trying to follow this, and I'm reading... You know, uh, Alberta's premier, Jason Kenney, he blamed this basically on the protests, on a general atmosphere of lawlessness. In the National Post, I read uh, the $20 billion frontier mine shelved amid escalating rail blockades. A direct connection is being drawn there. And as the conversation progressed, it became this debate as to like, well, what really did it in? Can you blame it on the protesters or... Do you blame this on Trudeau? Uh, I remember reading that it was uh, because of Canada's basket case regulatory framework. We just, you know, our policies, we have bad leadership, and it's it's the Trudeau government that uh, is just creating so much um, uncertainty amongst investors that projects like this sends a terrible message, and we can expect no further investment in Canada after this project was pulled. Rick, mm -hmm. separate from me trying to understand and get to, uh, uh, you know, my own opinion with this information as to why this happened. I'm not even thinking about Canada. I I am listening to the Daily, the New York Times podcast, right? And I, I happen to listen to this episode, which is talking about, you know, like the thing that first got my attention was that, you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, richest man in the world, has uh, dedicated $10 billion to fighting climate change. And so they do an episode where they, they, they dig into why not only Jeff Bezos, but why all of these major, major corporations in America are suddenly going green and why Delta Airlines has made this big announcement that they're going carbon neutral and Microsoft and on and on. And it's this fascinating story. I don't really follow financial stuff as well as I should. But what I, what I learned was this guy I didn't know about before, Larry Fink, who controls BlackRock, BlackRock, which is the biggest investor in the world. They have $7 trillion. Like this guy decides we're $7 trillion. I can't even conceive of a trillion dollars. This guy has seven of them. <laughs> what he does is every year he writes uh, an email that goes out to all the CEOs where he basically says, this is what we're investing in uh, and this is what's important. And he has just this like incredible power to shape uh, corporate, not just America, but the world. 
And part of that is that he sets the trend, but part of it is that he directly controls this an incredible amount of resource. And so I was wondering, like, wow, how come I'm reading in, in isolation from this greater corporate shift towards uh, carbon neutral investments? And then I'm reading about this tech thing as if it's just about, like, indigenous protesters or, or Trudeau policy. BlackRock is the top investor in tech. Hey, this is Jesse here interrupting myself to say that we caught an error in our show after recording it. BlackRock is a top investor in tech. They're not the top investor. To be exact, it is the third largest shareholder, according to the Financial Post. Okay, back to the show. I was just shocked to learn that we're having this media discussion in Canada that is just, I don't know that I've heard Fink or BlackRock mentioned in the mm. avalanche of coverage around who in Canada is to blame for this tech mine pullout. Hmm. Yeah, no, this is this is news to me. <laughs> From what I understand, there are people connected to BlackRock who are connected to, to, to Justin Trudeau and that uh, don't play a small part in giving advice on, on what the Liberals may or may not want to do economically. So there's a tight relationship there with various economic elites and political elites. So, yeah, it's very much a germane thing to reference. You, you, you get into this thing where you've got Jason Kenney in his war room and, and it's like a, this weird, like narcissistic thing, like the world's out to get Alberta. Like the world doesn't care about Alberta. Like, like the, in the world right now, we're moving past this point where you can kind of like use PR, like ethical oil or cuddly coal. The corporate world is moving away from the kind of investments that Canada is is deeply, deeply dependent on. You know, and that's a bitter pill to swallow, uh, especially for Alberta, but for the whole country. And it is alarming to me how poorly served we are in, in our information diet that we we have allowed ourselves, I think, to kind of be like isolated on this like a Galapagos island of information where we're just sort of like trading insults at each other and really scapegoating indigenous protesters for like somehow playing a role. Well, I mean, in some of the better reportage I've seen uh, from places like the National Observer, they talked about how another project, the Fort Hills project, which is connected to the oil sands, tech wrote down some losses from that. And that to me would also seem kind of pertinent for for mapping out the terrain of what may or may not have informed its its decision making, but again, the media is more excited and finds more sexy the 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 the, the Kenny versus Trudeau type of battle. I, I think you know low information, so called low context audiences are at the are at the mercy of of, of that type of reportage. And other other interesting context might be how, frankly, I don't think it's a debate, but let's say it's it's worth a debate as to what extent state intervention made the oil sands possible in the first place. Right, right. So, you know, this this sort of interplay between private and public actors, you know, some people might see that as kind of wonky and whatnot, but in this case, it, not at all. So if the state can, can lead a, a province and by extension a big part of Canada into this particular uh, form of economic development, well, it could lead it out as well. And so... Gramsci talked about an interregnum. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the old era is dying while the, while the new one's being formed, and it's, we're sort of in the messy middle. middle. I guess this is what it looks like uh, in the headlines of uh, major newspapers. That's a deep cut. Um, <laughs> Gramsci on short cuts. Uh, you know what? I've been using that a lot lately. It's getting tired now. Sorry. <laughs> 
I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this, just as an indigenous person uh, and one who's very media minded and keeping a close eye on this. The focusing of so much of the news and the consequences for the future of this country, and I think in, in many cases incorrectly, got it like, like with this tech mind thing, on the shoulders of indigenous people has consequences. And I'm, I'm reading tweets from people who moderate comments saying, I just had to remove 100 death threats against indigenous people That's from right. my news company's website. And, you know, like the button that is getting pressed and it's just, I'm getting whiplash from how quickly Canada has gone from this kind of like conciliatory or reconciliatory, you know, uh, very warm and fuzzy posture to just uh, the, the, the fangs are being, uh, are being bared here and it's ugly. And I, 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 I wonder what that's like from your perspective and if you're noticing this too. Well, you know, I, I've, I've been in a, a mild state of anxiety uh, this week, uh, you know, preparing for this, for this podcast because, you know, I've had to watch the footage and, you know, uh, if it wouldn't cost uh, too much money to replace it, I would have thrown stuff at the TV repeatedly because I'm just, uh, all these different, like you say, sins of, of omission and commission when it comes to, to trying to tell the story. I can just see how all of all of these uh, gaps or all of these misleading tropes and frames are going to be weaponized. And in fact, I mean, these tropes don't just emerge organically. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of spin going on and vested interests in seeing these these projects go ahead. And when they're thwarted, you know, that, that makes some people angry. And to see us, uh, to see Indigenous people's uh, scapegoated for this when, again, I, I made that distinction between upstream and downstream parts of, of what is currently called Canada. It is an infinitesimal uh, uh, minority of Indigenous peoples who've, who've benefited from, from resource development. And in fact, our depopulation, our displacement, and our disappearance were, were as Jesse Wente rightly pointed out, were the necessary preconditions for these things to happen. And so... It shouldn't be a mystery why there's pushback. The mystery should be why why didn't it come sooner? But all of that is eviscerated. All of that is is absent. I know there's only so much time in a given report, but I worry. I don't know where this is going to go, but to blame those who've been primarily victimized by the operations of resource development for its downfall, well, it's very convenient, but it's also... It's, it's pretty shitty. Can I just say one more thing, though? Just one more thing. Something that gets thrown around a lot, quite often without you know, anyone having to explain it, is, are these notions of economic realities and political realities. And I really want to see the media take ownership over the climate realities. Because I, I honestly think the first two are very much open to dispute they're very much open to manipulation. The climate ostensibly is not. And I think in some ways, all the things we've talked about today, they are what happen when you have a media that, that has no capacity to understand the climate. I mean, it's only recently that, that they, they finally let go of this idea. Well, there's a debate. The science is not settled. And as far as I'm concerned, what are the costs of being wrong? in terms of uh, the climate, uh, uh, you know, misunderstanding the climate. If you understand it in the direction of less carbon, to me that doesn't seem quite nearly as consequential uh, as the opposite. It's a rant, I apologize, but, uh, and I'm still trying to articulate what 
a new set of ethics and values and protocols and procedures would be in, in, in an era of, of existential climate crisis. But holy shit, man, like if, if we're not going to respond as the institution entrusted with telling the truth and helping us make decisions about our lives, who the F else are we going to, uh, to turn to? Anyway, end of rant. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I do read everything that you send. And uh, listen, if you want to support us and get ad-free versions of this show, and we need you to and we want you to, it's just $5 per month Canadian. It's never been easier to do that when you click on the link in the episode notes or just go to canadalandshow.com slash join. And it just goes bloop and puts the premium gold-plated Canada Land ad-free feed onto your app or desktop. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Rick Harp, where can people find you? Where can they find your podcast? They can find Media Indigena on Twitter, Media Indigena, I-N-D-I-G-E-N-A, and MediaIndigena.com. Our website is at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.